0: Last week, uh, soccer, that is, so the real football. And uh, we would talk about various teams, and I kept forgetting the names of the players. I, could, uh, I knew what team they were in, I knew what position they played, but I couldn't remember their names, and it just wasn't coming to me. No matter how hard I tried, the names were not coming to me, and even after minutes, it still wasn't coming. So I became very anxious and worried, what's happening? I can't remember anything more. Have I forgotten these players entirely? We moved on to other subjects, and we're talking about uh, familiar friends, mutual acquaintances. And I remember their names like that very easily. So is there a difference between the people you know about and the people you know personally? Do they get stored in a different place in your brain, or the pathway is different? towards those people we know. I wonder if knowing about people and knowing people personally is a completely different thing. So does the same thing happen between us and God? Does knowing about him mean that he is easier to forget than if we know him personally and if we relate to him and live with him personally? Does it mean that it's easier to call Him Yahweh, or the Lord Jesus? Sometimes I hear people say, Father God, have you ever heard that? I always feel weird. I know it's not weird for them, and there's nothing, they're not doing anything wrong, but it always feels weird to me. It always feels as if it's been distanced. And uh, I think about what Jesus said, He said, Abba Father dad of fathers, father of fathers. It's it's meant to be personal, not distanced. I'm not saying that they are distancing, it might feel personal to them. But I'm just saying that it feels weird when I hear it. God is personal with us human beings. Does God just want to get things done? Is it just, is the book of Exodus about God? Or is it about Moses? Does God just want to get things done? Is Moses just a means to his ends? Is Moses just the best, worst option that God has to choose for a leader? Well, if we look at uh, Exodus chapters 3 to 4, perhaps we'll gain some more understanding as to what is going on, what God thinks, and who Moses is. First thing we need to realize is that Moses is on an ordinary working day. He's got his uh, herd of whatever it is and he's moving them around, he's doing shepherd work and Moses goes to the mountain location and at this particular time this location is of no particular significance. We all know that it's significant, yes, Mount Sinai, Horeb, but at this time it's not. And we have to stand in the history as it is written. Moses is just there with some sheep, maybe some goats, and we've got to remove all our assumptions and our understandings of what that means. If we do this, we can see clearly what the problem is, and that is that God has been forgotten. He's been largely forgotten, not just by Moses, but by the Israelites. They have been overwhelmed, and Moses is just a lowly shepherd wandering around the desert of Midian. Now the messenger in a a firebush, that's it, a firebush is a messenger, it's weird, isn't it? But that's exactly what it says. Now this thing, now we know why it's there. It's because God has to reveal himself. He has to break in. He has to do something supernatural. He has to do something extraordinary to make himself known. He has to break into this world of ignorance and forgetfulness. And so in verses 4 to 6, it is through this messenger firebush that God speaks. The ground around this bush is holy because God is present in this messenger firebush. The creator of the universe is speaking and he's speaking on a human level, in a human language to a human person. He calls Moses, familiarly, Moses. Moses, he calls him twice. It's meant to have that sense of familiarity. He knows him personally. God asks Moses to take his shoes off before he enters his presence, his house, his temporary house, before he enters his temporary tent. The presence of God here. God explains who he is And Moses is now beginning to understand what is going on. In verses 7 to 10, now God explains the reason for speaking at this moment in time. And this is where I get confused. God speaks about misery, crying and suffering. What about the midwives in chapter one? This is decades ago when the little baby boys have been targeted. What about in chapter 2, where the people are being beaten and oppressed and treated horribly and the man is beaten up and Moses steps in? Where was God then? Why is He not doing anything? Why is He not acting? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know why He's not acting then. But what I do know is this, is that it says that God was watching the misery. So, He wasn't absent, He hadn't disappeared, he hadn't forgotten his people, he was watching. Second thing is, he was hearing. He was hearing the pain and the cries and the terrible uh, noises that people make when they suffer. God was knowing their agony. He wasn't gone. The people might have lost or forgotten or not remembered who he is anymore. But he was not gone, he was still there. He was suffering with them. Is it possible that God wasn't acting because the people had yet to cry out? Well, again, I don't know, but this seems to be likely the most poss- the best possible explanation because that's what the text indicates to us. It indicates that God heard their cry. The cries came to him. They reached him. In verses 8 to 9, he hears this cry and he says, I will come down and rescue them. And then he says to Moses, I'm going to send you. And those two are the same thing in God's mind. They're not different. I have come down to rescue them, and I am sending you Moses. So let's think about the song we sang earlier. Do the deer animals sweat? Does anyone know? Do dogs sweat? They pant. They pant. Exactly right. So what is the what is the deer doing? Sorry why do the peer pant for water it's because it's hot and they're probably desperate and dehydrated they're hot maybe from running from being hunted probably because so when do we need god's help when are we desperate and dehydrated what is the experience of david in that psalm so here's the question why is it that we Only ask for God's help at the last possible moment. Why do we wait so long? Now, I'm not saying this is true, but I wanted to think about it. Did the bravery of the midwives, was that them just doing it themselves? Did they ask for help from God at the same time? Well, it doesn't really tell us, does it? but they are trying to do it themselves why is it that we might take a few beatings and still not ask god for help our human condition is that we try to do things ourselves we try to save ourselves we try to do the work ourselves we try to make ourselves better we try to make ourselves holy we try Our hardest and our best to do the work. But why is it that we don't turn to God in desperation? Why do we not do that at the very beginning, before we are hunted, before we are oppressed, before we are taking a few beatings? In chapter 3 verses 1 to 10, it reveals who God is and what He is like. The reason why he is revealing himself is because the people have suffered and they have cried out for help. All we have learned about Moses is that God knows him and that he wants him, He wants to send him back to Egypt. So in verses chapter three verses 11 to four verse nine, God begins persuading Moses persuading him about who he is, and what he is intending to do. So let's look at Moses' responses. The, fir- the three responses that Moses has, the first one in chapter three, verse 11 is, well, who am I? And the second response Moses has in three, verse 13, and it says, what do I do, or what do I say? And the, th- and the third response in verse four, v- chapter four, verse one, is how do I prove it? So, Moses' questioning is indicating a complaint, and it's also indicating that he doesn't understand what's going on, and it's also he showing concern about what God is asking him to do. God's response to Moses saying, who am I that you should send, is to say, well, I will be with you. And I will be with you from the beginning until the end. Who is Moses? Well, he is the one God is with. That's the key point that God wants to make to him. He is the one who God will work with, who will strengthen, who will encourage, who God will lead, who will give him all the words, everything he needs in order to be able to do what he is asked. Unlike the last time Moses tried to do the right thing, and then the Israelite promptly responded responded in chapter 2, verse 14, who made you ruler and judge over us? He now will have the protection of God, the Lord God himself, to bring the people to come out and worship God in the desert, on the mountain of Sinai. So does Moses believe God will do this? Yes, because he moves to another question. Moses keeps moving on. What's the next problem that Moses has discovered? Oh, yes, God, send me, but hang on, there's this problem, and then there's this problem. What do I say? Because Moses has no idea what to say to the people because whatever he said before, it never worked. What is he supposed to say if he goes to Egypt? Well, it will be Moses' job to say three things. Firstly, he's going to tell the people who God is, and secondly, he's going to tell them what God's promise is, and thirdly, he's going to tell them what God's plan is. So in verses 13 to 15 of chapter 3, I am who I am. What does this tell us about God, and what is God telling the people about Himself? Well it is telling them that God is a living and active person. He's not a concept. He's not something that's out there. I is the personal. And I am is the existing one. The one who is participating in all of creation. This is a living and active being. A real person. He is and will be called Yahweh. And the second thing he tells them is that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the one who provided the ram to Abraham in the the desert, on the mountain. He is the one who gave the well to Isaac. And he is also the one who wrestled with Jacob. All these stories... probably still going around so it's important to remember that the israelites know who abraham is they know who isaac is and they know who jacob is their ancestors god is a relational god and he is related to them and their families for many many years these are the people of the tribes of israel that is jacob So, what is God's promise in verses 16 to 17? This living and active and existing God has been watching for the last few generations, their misery. His promise is to take them out of Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan. What we need to remember is that they have been in Egypt for about 400 years and most of that time has been very productive, they've produced an awful lot of children as we were told in chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. In other words, they had lived a prosperous life. They had grown lots of children in many of those centuries. It was only in verse 8 of chapter 1 that a new king came along. And the new king came along, and he ruined everything. The problem problem is that now God is promising to send them to a place of more fruitfulness and provision and prosperity is he offering them prosperity no he's not offering them prosperity he's giving them a land that is rich it is a provision of something that a place that can be rich that has wealth in it that doesn't mean that they will be prosperous the prosperity always depends on their relationship with God That is where true richness is. And there they can multiply and they can be fruitful and they can show the goodness and the glory of God to people again. So that is the promise. In verses 18 to 22, Moses is now going back. Sorry, Moses is now meant to tell them about his plan. What is God's plan? Well, step one, Moses and the Israelite elders are to go and represent the community to Pharaoh. Step two, they've got to ask for something small. You don't ask, okay, can I take all these people out of this land and never come back? No, God says, ask for something small. Ask for something achievable. Can we go to the desert for a week, to this place, and worship God, and we'll be back in a week? Because it's three days in, then they have their festival, and then three days journey back. So it's about a week of going off and worshipping God for a religious purpose. Step three, God says, well, Pharaoh probably won't let that happen, but I will fight for you, Israel. God will fight for them. not they have to fight? The Israelites don't have to do any fighting. God's going to do all the fighting. And God will win. He's going to win so convincingly that the Egyptians are going to give them stuff for free. They're going to give them their jewels and their expensive clothes. And they're going to be able to wear those things and wear them as they travel to the new land. All that wealth will travel with them to be carried. An often and misforgotten thing about Exodus is that some Egyptians went with them. We forget that bit. It'll come up, pay attention, it's important. The Egyptians went with them, some of them, and they believed in Yahweh too. Isn't that great and good that it's not just the Israelites who go to the promised land, but also some of the Egyptians. God plans to win this war as the divine warrior. So does Moses believe God will do this? Yes. Because he goes on to ask another question, to make another complaint, to make another objection. But we also need to take note that Moses' questions also reflect his understanding that he believes God. What Moses is complaining about is himself and his part. He's thinking of himself. He's thinking, I can't do this. This is too much. He's not. He's scared of God, yes, as we saw at the very beginning, but he's thinking of himself and he's thinking of where he is now. So how do I prove it is Moses's next question. And and God gives him three signs, the power over the snake, power over the disease and power over the Nile. These are not just arbitrary signs. They have significance in the minds and the hearts of people. You see, they are meant to awaken people into thinking about the Lord God Almighty and what he has power over. So if you think about the snake, well, some people say that it's a reference to the fact that the cobra goddess um, is, uh, puts the pharaoh on his throne. But I think it's more basic and more fundamental than that. I think it's more biblical. The snake or the serpent is representative of evil, something dangerous to be feared, the enemy. Moses ran from the snake. It's a physical response to a great danger, an enemy. Moses is told to exercise power over a great threat to humanity. Evil is itself, is this great enemy. And it does come in the form of the Pharaoh. He is representative of evil, and he does become the great enemy of God of this time. And just to pick pick it up, just to pick that snake up without fear, to overcome evil so easily, that must be extraordinary in the minds of the people. And in the minds of Pharaoh when Moses does that before them. The second thing is, the next sign is disease. So, he sticks his hand in his cloak, takes it out and now his hand is flaking. Bits and pieces are falling off, but the skin is drying up and it's flaking off and his hand is collapsing. It's a sign of decay and death and disease. A mere fever in the ancient world was a sign of impending death. To us, a fever is not so dangerous anymore. Well, except for the last two years. To present with a cough nowadays is immediately met with serious suspicion. And beware, if you hear me cough, it's because I still have a cough. But I've already had the evil disease and it's over. (laughs) But I still have the cough. Moses obeys and his hand is healed. So imagine the awful sight of the flaking hand, the wasting disease. It's untreatable. There are no cures in ancient times. Well, not many. And death is much more often seen, and disease is a sign that death is coming quickly. So, you can see that this sign is against the threat of death itself, disease being an obvious sign of death. And finally, the last sign is the sign of the River Nile. This is the source of life in Egypt. I I was once watching a documentary, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, but. Everything in Egypt is built along the two sides of the river Nile because that's where all the fertile land is. This is the place of prosperity. This is the, where the provision of all living things comes from. Everything comes from the Nile. Most of the gods are related to the Nile. Moses will later turn the water from the Nile, the source of life, into the essence of blood, which is the essence of life. This demonstrates power over the Nile and all the gods. It demonstrates power the God has over all creation. Yahweh through Moses is showing signs not to give Moses credibility, but to show that God, the Lord of the universe, is speaking for Moses and that he has the power over life itself. The power to give life. God is with him and his message is powerful. And this is the moment when it became too much for Moses. It was too much. He now had everything, the whole plan. Everything for his ministry was totally planned out. God had said, here's the map of your life from now on. And Moses couldn't handle it. Moses had run out of objections and complaints and ideas. He knows who God is, what He will do, and how He will do it. So twice now, Moses says, please no. Please no. I can't be your messenger, I don't have the skills. And Yahweh's response can be read in two ways. One. God knows what Moses is capable of and, two, God can make Moses into a great speaker. Now, I think it's the former. I think Moses already had all the skills. He'd been to university. The first 40 years of his life, he was trained in the court of Pharaoh. He'd already been to university. He'd received his over-education. Completely and utterly overeducated is Moses. And now, the last 40 years, he's been spending his time wandering around with a bunch of animals in the desert, in the place of Midian. What's happened to Moses is that he's been doing shepherd work for 40 years. His skills have atrophied and degraded. Yes, I don't have those skills anymore. I haven't been doing them for a long time. But also, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to Egypt. His speaking and brain muscles have gone. We know Moses' life is roughly cut up into three sections, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midia and 40 years in the wilderness. Imagine this, Moses is both university trained and outback trained. Perfect for leading the people into the wilderness, to the Promised Land. And finally, the second time, Moses the second time says no, and now we get God's emotional response. God is angry. He's angry with Moses' reluctance. Now. It's easy for us, we sit there and go, well, God is angry, therefore, he's not thinking straight. But that's not how God works. What do we learn? We learn that God had already prepared an answer for this problem. He already had Moses, sorry, Aaron, on his way. Aaron is already on his way to meet with Moses. Now, can you be angry and prepared at the same time? Yes. God, does God have the right to be angry with Moses, his beloved servant? Yes. Does God give Moses a choice? No. He doesn't give him a choice. It's God who makes the decision. It's interesting. It, it, we, we often miss it. We reread it in the way we think and not in the way God thinks. Then God's anger burned against Moses and he said... What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put his words in his mouth and I will help you both of you speak and to teach you what to do. That's it. It's over. We are very big on being our own choosers and our own decision makers. But... uh, God doesn't give a choice to his church, nor does the Lord Jesus give a choice to the church. We are the place of the gospel, the good news, the message of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It is our job and our responsibility to serve his house, which is us, and to serve the people with this gospel. God knows the right time to make himself known. I don't know the right time for God to make himself known. And he knows the right person to do the work. I don't know who that is, but I know that God knows. When that happens, I don't know. He is with us individually, but that does not make us Moses we all have our responsibilities within his church. We are all servants of the gospel in his community. Like Moses, we all have to grow in confidence to continue the great work of salvation. Jesus asks his church to continue his work. Jesus has sent his spirit to help us to spread that good news. So let's look at a few uh, New Testament verses and let's see if we can understand a bit more about how to think. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And you can see in verses 6 to 10 of Romans 5 that it's very clear. Jesus has power over evil, the ungodly, and he has power over death, he died, and he has power over life, he was raised. And that resurrection saves us and gives us life and gives other people life. At the right time, Jesus came. And at the right time, Jesus died. And at the right time, he was raised from the dead. And at the right time, that message came to us. And at that right time, we received it. And at the right time, we received life. 2 Timothy chapter 1. For God gave us not... Sorry, for the Spirit, God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, we can easily just sit there and read that and go, here is the individual Paul, and here is the individual Timothy. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, For the Spirit God gave us, both Timothy and Paul, and the church, and everyone in it. The Spirit is given to us for the purpose of the gospel. It is the power to us as God's church. It is the power to us in God's church from the Lord, from the Lord Jesus, and from our Father in heaven. This is what gives us power to be able to serve and share the good news. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 3 verses 5 to 6, Moses was a faithful as a servant of, in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now, the important verb there is hold firmly, hold the line. It's almost a military term. And so whatever confidence we have, no matter how small or how big, hold to it. And that future hope, the hope of the resurrection and passing through the judgment without being, without being judged as evil. Avoiding death for all eternity. If we have even a small understanding of that, hold onto it and hold and hold and hold and keep on going. Moses had lost confidence and hope. But God returned to him because he knew that Moses was a faithful servant and a capable faithful servant. The Lord Jesus is our rescuer and he knows us personally. He wants you. He wants us. He is with us in all circumstances, at all times. The Holy Spirit is the power to make us useful servants. The Holy Spirit gives us fruiting skills. It gives us the ability to produce fruit. Our confidence should be in our Father's plan, trusting in the job that he has given us as his church, to be a people who serve the message that gives people life and, yes, pays for their death. Jesus has certainly paid for all of our death and for all death, but he also is offering people Life, a hope, a future, a resurrection. Because God, our Father, the Son and the Spirit have the power over evil, they have the power over death and they have the power over life and that is how he will rescue us. Because God is the great rescuer and that essentially is what the book of Exodus is about. How God executes his plan. Not through the smooth path that we saw earlier today. That path is terrible. Who wants to go on a smooth, easy road? Let's go on the complicated, route-driven path that goes up the hill and into the light. Because that is the path of our relationship. And Moses is no different from any one of us. And we all need to hold to our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ.